Hey everybody, welcome to Speed Point Landing, another episode in which we talk about the uh, crazy, awesome, weird, cool things in popular culture, uh, movies, TV, and comics. And today we're going to be talking about a a documentary series called High Score, which dropped this week on Netflix. I'm Matthew, with me today... I'm Misha, and today we'll be talking about, yes, that documentary about video game history, or, as Matthew looks at it, his recent past. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, yes. It's, you know, it's funny you, you, it's funny you frame that that way, actually, because I was reading some reviews about the documentary uh, about High Score, and one of the things they said, one of their co- complaints was that they felt like this show was aimed at teenagers, and I don't know necessarily if I agree with that. I do think there's, you know, it's, it's something to be thought about. Because, but his frame of reference was only teenagers would not know about this stuff, right? And that was his that was his his angle. Okay, uh, for everyone just tuning in, Matthew is talking about High Score, a six episode documentary on Netflix, looking back at the last forty years of video game development. Each episode is broken up into different genres, and um, I think what Matthew's going for here is that a lot of the stuff that's covered is not exactly new information. Mm-hmm. Um, is is that right? I mean, that is the accusation. Um, it's not so much new information, but rather the framing of the whole thing, as is accused by one writer, is that it's supposed to be so like revelatory when actually it is something that teenagers that only teenagers would not know, or only younger people would not know. And I don't agree with that. Actually, I don't I agree. Think, yeah, because like if you can make a documentary called the nineties. You know, like a six-hour documentary about the 90s, and that was only 30 years ago at this point. Who's to say we're not allowed to make a documentary about some, about the development of video games that happened 40, 50 years ago? Come on. And just yeah, because that it's something that some people take to heart doesn't necessarily hold true for the majority of people mm. who might be watching. That is, that's actually an excellent way to frame it that I haven't considered. Like, there's so many topics that have happened in the past year or five years or 10 years that people exhume and turn into you know material for documentary. So the idea that thirty years is like too soon a time frame. Mm, I don't know. Yeah, the statute of limitations is different for exactly. that. Exactly. I mean, what is there an upper limit to how soon you can make documentary? I, I think you can make a documentary about this year, like right now, and yeah, nobody's gonna, nobody's gonna complain. There's just all, so much to unpack. There's so much to document, and even somebody like myself, I'm not as well versed in video game culture or journalism as you, but. I like to think that I have a good enough grasp on it that I knew a lot of the stories going in, and it still managed to surprise me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think something people forget about the value of documentaries is that while they are largely framed as more educational than other for other genres of video production of video, they are also meant to entertain. And right. that, for me, is where I got pleasure out of the high score series, is that, yeah, sure, I knew who Roberta Williams was, or Richard Garriott, or John Romero, and almost everybody there, you know, I knew about, except for some of the more obscure stories, which we'll get to later. But it was entertaining for me to see them present the material in the way that they did. Like, one thing I appreciated that the documentary did consistently was they would have these, these, these game luminaries who are well in their 40s all the way up to the age of 70, Mm-hmm. sort of reenact what they did. Now, they don't have archival footage, but they'd mm-hmm. be like, all right, this, uh, a 60-year-old Roberto Williams would take out a large piece of paper and mm-hmm. proceed to repeat the process as she remembered it of laying out 
the, the first video game she had ever designed. Right. Uh, and that was in cool. My, like, yeah, absolutely. And in my case, uh, I greatly enjoyed that. It's a little bit of it, it's a it's a very tongue in cheek kind of thing to do. It's not entirely a, re- a reenactment, but it is a recreation. It's a representation of the creative process or the eureka moments that these major figures in video game history had. And I think the fact that you have them doing the actual actions that gives it a lot of verisimilitude for lack of a better word a lot of authenticity that you wouldn't have if it was actors putting on a show like like the very first episode you have tomohiro nishikado the creator of space invaders showing off his love of magic of sleight of hand i mean (laughs) that was delightful to me i think that i put that on the same level as seeing one of the creators of transformers talking about his love for transforming robots in that episode of the toys that made us Mm. Um, you see that these people even if they're in their senior years they haven't forgotten the joy that they got out of creating these things and sharing them with the world Mm -hmm. and the recognition that these genres these products these figments of their imagination previously the the hold that these things have on us now even so many years later is testament to how groundbreaking their work was. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's also functional, I think. Like, people forget that documentaries are also a visual medium. They're not just dry voices placed over archival footage or pictures of old newspapers from microfiche libraries. You see what I mean? Like, that stuff, you know, can only get you so far. So when when the documentary narrator, Charles Martinet, uh, obscure, like, little uh, fun fact, the, the narrator of documentary, Charles Martinet, is the voice of, the official voice of Mario. Absolutely. <laughs> it's him, Mario. Yeah, but uh, that aside, like, when he narrates something and he tells you, well, you know, Tomohiro did this and Tomohiro did that, it's greatly enhanced by being able to see what he is saying as a narrator. You know what I mean? Like, you can't just let the narration carry everything and make the viewer do all the work in their head imagining what happened. I think what also makes it work is, I mean, fine, you've got the images from the periods that they're talking about. You have the archival, the vintage footage. But what really, really makes it for me is that the producers, the, 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 the production company behind it, Great Big Story, they took the time, effort, and money to seek these people out. They yeah. didn't, they're not just reading out of some dusty old textbook. They're getting the story right from the horse's mouth. And I think yeah. it's incredible. Look, this is not the first video game documentary ever produced. Far from it. But I think for the most part, this is the most accessible one that I've seen in years. And the yeah. fact that they have these actual luminaries featured in it is a big deal and worth well worth getting excited for. The, the funny thing uh, for all of you listening is that when I pitched this to Matthew, he was initially skeptical. Can, can you tell us about that? <laughs> Absolutely. Like, um, because, you know, you are the god of video games. So I want to <laughs> know why you were skeptical and what change of heart you experienced. You know, when I saw that there would be a video game documentary series called High Score... Like you rolled your eyes, didn't you? Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I spinning in my skull, like you know, freaking wheels on a slot machine. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I, I, I thought, oh great, it's called the high score. It's going to be about the bleeps and blops and about you know space invaders and all that stuff. It's going to be all about this retro gaming stuff that you know only people of the Gen X generation or Boomer generation like have fixated themselves on. You know, that's where I was coming at. Or 
I was like, the, the best case scenario is it was going to be all like, video games, they're so big, they make so much money, esports, you know, that's like, those are the two modes of documentary that exist right now for video games. And I know, but who hurt you? I mean, really, who hurt you? <laughs> you, you got to go into things with an open mind. I wasn't going to throw oh, no. it at you if well, it looked like garbage. Well, like I said, uh, you know, I did express my skepticism and misgivings, but at the same time, I was also like, all right, I'm going to give this a fair shake. Like, it's my, it's my duty as a <laughs> self-styled video game pundit to give everything a fair shake. So... You know, I popped in those two episodes, and next thing you know, I'm running back to Misha and being like, oh, you know, we, we, really, we, we really got to do this series. <laughs> <laughs> no, honestly, honestly, okay, I did not expect it to be as respectful of the medium as it ultimately proved to be. I didn't expect that respect, and I didn't expect the absolute polish that yeah. they applied to every aspect of the production i mean even something as inherently stupid as a former nintendo game counselor wearing a mullet <laughs> wearing a wig to to represent his 80s self and yeah, then that's shooting a fake employee training video to to walk you through the idea of game counselors because don't you know a lot of people now can't imagine a world where you can't just google the the answer to a game there's that's a walk through right. a solution or a map or a clue or a tip yeah, or as the narrator puts it, you know, like you don't have YouTube to bail you out anymore. And I, I, I tell you, I tell you, yesterday I was playing uh, a small indie game called Evans Remains, which is a series of side scrolling, like, you know, button puzzles. And I was just like, oh man. Gotta look up YouTube. <laughs> gotta, this, this puzzle, what, what the hell? I gotta look up YouTube. My big takeaway from that whole game counselor revelation of Nintendo, my sorry, my re main revelation there was the fact that they didn't get any hints, tips, or tricks from the developers. They had to actually play the games themselves before they could give advice on them. And they didn't even get advanced copies. They got them the same day that those things hit stores. I know, right? And, the, and also the, what was really interesting to me was the mental load. Like that's obscene. The There's of, no way. The amount of portion, you know, the amount of territory in their brain that they needed to to, uh, to consume all of that game strategy information was right. growing. Was growing every month, every time new games came out, and it necessitated the invention of their own personal homemade strategy guides. Which the, the documentary doesn't make this explicit link. They don't draw a line to it. But I'm gathered to. I, I'm I'm inclined to assume that 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 those homemade strategy guides were what led to Nintendo Power and what led to the strategy guide, like, like the modern Prima Brady game strategy guides that, you know, emerged later. Three-point Going back to the first episode, I really liked, um, actually through all the episodes, I enjoyed the glimpses into the creative processes of the different developers. Yeah. Some of them were just regular guys doing a job. Some of them were just passionate artists. Some of them were just people who stumbled into it completely by accident. But yeah. all of them had a great story to tell. And I love that the documentaries, each episode takes the time, the time to show them. Something that was a little bit odd for me, though, was they took the time to talk about how the NES, the NES, I know it pisses you off when I say NES, that the NES um, deliberately Americanized for the Western yeah. market, right? Yeah. They took the time to show that. But you don't get an equivalent scene when we're talking about how Mega Drive is Genesis. Mm. Why do you suppose that is? 
Because it, it's not like they couldn't go to Japan. They already went to Japan. Like, like they were in Japan for half this documentary. So why, why, why? And they were they were already talking to people in Sega of America. So why, why wouldn't you? Well, you know, here's the thing. Like, um, what I want to go back to is something you said about about the production company, great big story. They make great <clears throat> short form videos. And one thing you notice about the way great big story does their stuff in both uh, this documentary series and in their YouTube channel is they always make people tell their story. They don't fill it in for you. You know, they always make sure that it's always in the voice of the subject, right? And I noticed that if there are any gaps, if there's any gaps that happened in the high score documentary series, it's because they couldn't get someone to actually speak honestly about the subject and it would have been inappropriate and also in violation of their own, like, you know, cinematic, their own protocol to have tried to fill it in with a less than reputable subject. Uh, for my part, what I was thinking was maybe there just wasn't that good a story behind it, you know? Well, maybe, maybe that. Maybe that was it, because I'm I pretty mean, sure if there was one, they would have found a way. Well, maybe, uh, okay, so for one thing, I don't have as much insight into the history of consoles as, you know, uh, as, as most other, as some of my peers, but um, I'm, I'm inclined to think that they just couldn't find an expert. So, for example... Uh, one thing that I won't say bought, one thing that uh, disappointed me in episode six, which was about first person shooters, is that they got John Romero to talk about how he and his friends made Doom. And that was cool. I, you know, I, I know the story back and forth. It's, it's chronicled in David Kushner's book, Masters of Doom. Excellent okay. book. And but one notable oversight was the absence of John Carmack from uh, the game. Yes. Okay, wait, hold on. Two seconds. The reason I'm laughing whenever I hear John Romero's name is because I remember the garbage fire that was Daikatana. I, said, yeah. I, cannot, I cannot unsee that from my mind's eye. I mean, honestly. You know, you want to, you want, you, you think Daikatana and, and, the, and the Iron Storm studio that, 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 that made Daikatana, you think that stuff is bad and like laughable now? Uh, you know, let's, let's pour a few drinks and I'm going to tell you the sordid history of John Romero's. Publicly available love life. <laughs> I, I don't want to know any more about that than I already do. Thank to you be, very much. To, to be fair, I think he's in a good place right now. He's in a great place right now. Every time I hear interviews from him, he sounds like a very a much wiser person. I think having, you know, made I, such... <laughs> you know, and, I think that's because he got all the debauchery out of his system in the 90s. Exactly, exactly. He's made catastrophic mistakes professionally and personally such that, you know, he's able to emerge like this. And he's, you know, one of his... Uh, his his current wife, uh, Brenda Romero, I, you know, she's like one of the great game gods of this generation, actually. And we'll talk about that some other time. But yeah, uh, but yeah, so the John Carmack wasn't there. And I felt like the Doom story was underserved by his absence. And so I wonder that thing yeah. that you're talking about with the Mega Drive, why was he not, why was it there no good story about the Mega Drive's Americanization? Into uh, a genesis. Yeah, and maybe, and maybe that person just was reticent to talk about it or just wasn't available. I mean, that one thing... possible. Yeah, but or maybe... Carmack not talking about Doom? That seems off to me. Well, I think Carmack is just not a person who likes talking about his work in general. That's the his reputation. Uh, you know, he'll... he'll, okay. he'll maybe he said no when he found out Romero was involved. Uh, maybe, maybe. But they seem to be on good terms now. I guess, I just guess for whatever reason they declined. And, in, you know... There's also the fact that some of the people who are behind the, video, the history of video games, I think some of them old or dead. Like uh, one of the per- persons who showed up in the documentary was John Kirby, the American attorney. Oh, man. Yeah. I love that. I've always loved that guy. I've yeah. loved to see him interviewed. <laughs> yeah, he was, so he was the American attorney who helped Nintendo protect 
Donkey Kong from the predations of Universal Studios, who was coming at them for supposedly infringing on King Kong, right? right. And uh, at the end of the series, or the end of the documentary, uh, it's noted that Kirby died before the documentary was released. Absolutely. And that's why I think it's great that we're getting all these people's stories documented now, before now. it's too late. Yeah. Um, that, that that's something like do you remember when when dvds blu-rays were a big deal um now there's rumors that disney is actually going to stop making physical media and that's really sad for me because their physical media as of late doesn't even hold a candle to the stuff they were doing 10 years ago on dvds as far as supplemental material as far as documentaries or, or vhs and i wouldn't go that far but the thing <laughs> is the thing is, I remember when it was like the 30th anniversary of James Bond, for instance, the DVDs that came out at that time, they spent a ton of money to interview everybody who was still alive to get their stories on film before it was too late. So now you can look back on those DVDs. They're 20 years old. You can find the documentaries on YouTube. They're mm-hmm. an incredible treasure trove of facts from the people who lived them because you're, you just can't get that same kind of a feel reading a Wikipedia page. That's why, mm. and something we've discussed, you and I, in the past, something we've discussed in the before is that the video game industry, by definition, is notoriously horrible at documenting itself. And also secretive, so that's like a double whammy there. I mean, that's exactly why. It's because they're yeah. secretive, that they don't want their opponents to get a leg up on them. They, they don't want, you know, leaks of their projects. But the thing is, that is precisely what prevents them from being documented as heavily as, say, uh, the, the movie industry or, you know, even, even we know more about, you know, Kim Kardashian's day than we would know about the development of Super Mario at this point. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, I think that it's really good that they, they took the time and effort to do this. The first episode talks about the 1970s and the development of Space Invaders and the rise of the video arcade. The second episode talks about the crash of the home console market in North America and the rise of Nintendo. The third one, um, I was particularly fascinated about because that's something I am a bit um, lacking in as far as game knowledge goes. The third episode is about RPGs. What did you think of that? Oh, that was definitely where I, I really got over the moon with the series because like, well, first of all, obviously it's my jam because the, um, the, the subjects interviewed Roberto Williams, creator, creator of King's Quest and co-founder yes. of Sierra Online and Richard Garriott, uh, Lord British creator of Ultima. Like, these are yep. uh, people Legendary behind, names. Legendary names. Yeah, on the on the PC on the PC desktop, you know, gaming experience. Uh, I will admit that I have in the past expressed a lack of fondness for them, but I've mellowed out over time. You know, like you know, like um, no, case, no, 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 don't get me wrong. I agree with you on that note. They've done and said things that I am not particularly you yeah. know, a fan of or in support of over the years. But yeah. I will admit. Hearing them talk about their early days, yeah, it's like they, they got this like sense of wonder in them that it doesn't always come across in their other yeah. interviews. Yeah, you know, for the purposes of this episode, we are absolutely not going to litigate the the, the controversies or histories of, <laughs> of of Richard Garriott and and and, and Robert Williams. But yeah, like uh, I thought it was cool uh, cool to see that stuff, and I think what the one thing that the documentary also, series also did that was super cool was the pixel animation sequences. Now, first of all, disclaimer, I am usually ready to cringe when I see somebody try to do pixel animation stuff uh, for two reasons. One, I feel like it kind of 
it feels trite. It feels like when they do it, it's like, oh yeah, sure, you're trying to be cute, whatever. And number two, and this is a little bit less important of a concern, which is sometimes I think they're inauthentic in the sense that they'll try to do the pixel setting, but I'll be a big old nerd and go like, clearly you're going for the 256 color 320 by 200 look, but those colors were not represented in the palette. You have made it inaccurate, good sir. But yeah, um... I thought those sequences were cool because they took some of the wackier parts of the stories and mm-hmm. then animated that. Those, uh, and if you pay attention, like every time the pixel thing is going to come up, something funny or something wild is going to happen in the story. Oh, yeah. And I think also what made those sequences fun, representing the, the anecdotes as pixel art, um, they would try and tailor the genre of the game that they were, that they were um, aping mm-hmm. um, in the, with the anecdote, sorry, they would try and tailor the style or the genre of the game with the anecdote being told. Like when Kirby was talking about how he argued in front of a judge that Donkey Kong was not a ripoff of King Kong because everybody in Japan just refers to a giant ape as Kong by default. It became it, it became Phoenix Wright, Ace Attorney, and I was just <laughs> laughing my head off. I was like, oh my god, I see what you did there. Yeah, that was cool. And I noticed also like the. Uh, What's his name? See, uh, Sean Bloom, the guy who was one of the Nintendo game counselors, he arrives onto the Nintendo campus in in in, in Seattle. He arrives there like paperboy, uh, yeah, paperboy style, like crashing right through the door. And I'm just like, oh yeah, okay. I hate that game, by the way. <laughs> I hate that game, but for the purposes of illustrating an anecdote from 30, 40 years ago, it was brilliant. You can tell that the people who made this clearly have a lot of affection for the story that they're trying to tell which yeah. goes back to what you said earlier i think that you said um in our discussion today that we're not looking to litigate this the past sins of any of the participants and mm. i think that the documentary makers had that same thought in mind they're not yeah. looking to disparage they're not looking to embarrass to humiliate they just want to what i got was a sense of them wanting to celebrate video games in all its weird wackiness and i can't even believe that that video games are 50 years old now just Mm -hmm. i i I cannot wrap my head around that because i remember growing up you know with a family computer and that was just that just blew my mind and Mm -hmm. to, to know that you know there's just this much history that's passed and even the history that came before Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just it's just wonderful to be seeing it presented in this manner mm-hmm. in a way that d- isn't derogatory to gamers or to game culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like you know, like uh, one thing that, that you know, uh, doubling on what you just said, like that's the thing. Like there's an accusation from some critics that the game, that the game, that the documentary comes off as too much of a you know a commercial. And I'm just like, especially with particular to Nintendo. And uh, and Sega, and I'm like, I guess you know, if something's not necessarily sharply critical, you know, it's automatically a commercial. I don't buy. I don't. I don't buy that. I don't buy that. I just think that maybe that wasn't the story they were trying to tell. Yeah, I mean, I think personally, I think it could afford to be more critical in some instances. Like, um, uh, maybe a conversation could be had about you know the some of the labor. Some of the like mass firings that happened at Sierra Online towards the last of its days, or mm-hmm. maybe we could talk about um, you know crunch in and developer rights in Atari because the people who worked at Atari who made games um, they received a flat salary and they 
um, were not compensated for their work, regardless of whether a game made millions or not. And in fact, there was a small period of time when Atari wouldn't even give credits. Uh, some of their first cartridges, like, they would just see by Atari, and like, right, if, right. You, if you were the programmer, you received no credit. And one of the first Easter eggs in, in video game history was a guy who created... Credit. Yeah, right. it was a yeah, it was a secret code, secret room that had his name on it. I, I think no. I mean, I agree with you because you know you could even throw eight million things about EA there if you yeah. wanted to get technical about things that they could have yeah. been critical about. But again, I don't think number one, you would have been able to get the creators to sit down and be as candid as they were. Yeah, if you're going to talk about the dirt, I think yeah. by placing this documentary firmly on the birth or on the creation of some of our favorite gaming experiences you know it it doesn't quite it doesn't deny the crap that came afterward or during but at least we get to hear them talk in a way that we otherwise might not have well there's this is something i think there's something about that that is about like the way i see it is that it wasn't the space for it okay so there's a thing that people talk about on my on my side of twitter the the lefty side of twitter which is that you can talk about like things that are important issues that need to be criticized but if you're going to do it you need to be able to devote the time to interrogate it right and with only 6 50 minute long episodes trying to squeeze in like some kind of sharp criticism of any of these figures would taint the the story that you're trying to tell yeah and do that story, do the critical story injustice because there's no way you'd have room to tell all of it. You know what I mean? So if you want to do like, if you want to do like, oh, it was shitty to work on Sierra in the late 90s, then I make that's a whole... Its, that's his own documentary series. Yeah, that's his own documentary series. And you would it would be an injustice to try to smuggle it in there and then leave people just kind of like hanging with less than the optimum number of facts and information and right. testimonies that you that you could have. But as far as telling a story of where your favorite games began or where your favorite genres originated, I think this documentary series does that extraordinarily well. Honestly, mm-hmm. and if you want to see, if you want to hear about the dirt, there's other documentaries you could watch. But I promise you that they're not as well made, or they're yeah. not as entertaining. This is about a pure love of video games, Mm-mm. and honestly, this is like this is the video game equivalent of the toys that made us, and I mean that in the best possible way. Yeah, yeah. Three point landing. There's another, another part thing I appreciated uh, that gave me um, something new to like look at and talk about is they actually also spent some a few episodes t- telling the stories of people who may not necessarily have been seen as important in gaming history or rather mm-hmm. big deal in gaming history, but <clears throat> were underrepresented in the way we tell the story of video mm-hmm. gaming. And I know so, what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're talking about we're talking about Jerry Lawson, uh, right. a black electronics engineer who invent who invented the first home the cartridge based home co- console. We're talking right. about uh, Gordon B- Bellamy, uh, a EA empl- uh, an EA employee who worked on the Madden franchise during its later years and helped to make help to increase black representation in that game in a in a sport that has always had many black people. And they Absolutely. also talked about Ryan Best, uh, an obscure game designer who made a sort of parody of uh, another game called Gay Blade, mm-hmm. uh, who expressed his frustrations about 
what was going on in the 80s about you know homosexuality and the issues that they faced the, that the queer community faced i think that that's <laughs> what i meant um at the beginning when i said that this series goes into a lot of stories that i'd never heard personally like yeah talking about jerry lawson you know before Jerry Lawson invented the cartridge, which everybody ripped off afterward, Atari, Nintendo, you name it. Before Jerry Lawson created the cartridge, it, buying a console meant that was the one game that was on it. That was it. That's all you had. You didn't have a choice. So you bought a Pong console. You didn't buy an Atari console to play Pong. You bought a Pong console. And what Jerry Lawson did was he he just revolutionized everything i mean did you see that vintage ads that they were showing where atari was bragging that we have 20 different games yeah i know right i have an old uh, i have an old coleco vision that's all like you know when you buy a coleco vision you're opening to a world of this many games <laughs> good god uh i i also love that particular aspect of the vintage footage don't get me wrong it's fun seeing old home videos and old news footage talking about video games like it's the weirdest thing on earth i especially love seeing their marketing and their advertising from the days and the episode about the sega nintendo wars of the early 90s that just took me back with their their ads where sega just made fun of nintendo mercilessly that was just a lot because you could never get away with that now. I genuinely appreciated that section actually, because even though it's not new news, yeah. the depth which it explored Sega's strategy was very, very interesting and entertainingly presented to me. And I thought, and you know, like when I look at it now, I'm like, oh wow, you know, like you know, mm-hmm. that's yeah. all our all our tactics are genius. Like it's not it's not something that's new to us, but when he's when they start going through it beat, beat by bit, I'm like, oh. Oh, yes, you're a genius. (laughs) No, I also, no, on that note, yes, yes, we know these stories. Yes, we know the tactics that Sega used to win the console war back in the day. But what I didn't know and what I liked from this documentary is that they took the time to show those aspects or those strategies and how they affected the ordinary everyday gamer. Yeah. That that was great. Yeah, it's a nice collection of differentiation points. Going over point by point Sega strategy to beat Nintendo and then running it side by side with, you know, Sega's world champion video game tournament, you know, at the same time. And then contrasting that with the Nintendo world champion tournament from just, what, 10 years before that point. I was like, wow, the people who wrote this really know what they were doing. They really yeah. knew what they were doing. Uh, oh, those, those, those championship stuff was also... The championship stuff that's featured in two of the episodes I thought was made for some exciting stuff, too. Like, uh, like, like uh, they featured... Um, um, his name was Jeff Hansen, the winner right. of the World Championship. And I also appreciated the story of Chris Tang, winner of the 1994 Sega World Championship. That stuff was, like, exhilarating material to watch. You know, like... <laughs> yeah. Rock, rock the Rock with MTV and Sega. I know, right? Super, super nineties, super nineties. by Daisy Fuentes. Oh my God, it was so nineties. I know, I uh, I love it. Did you, uh, and did you hear the air horn they blew in the middle of that of that tournament? And it was like, and I was it was like, kind of sad. That was a, that was a fail of an air horn. Yeah, I was like, um, that air horn's fired. <laughs> Um, the next episode is something that I recall vividly because it hit when I was like 11 or 12. This is when the U.S. Senate went after video games for being too violent or too gory. I was just 
endlessly entertained because I honestly remember my parents having those discussions with us about what, oh, the, what games they would let us play or whether or not they were too violent or whether they were appropriate. And I remember that that just made me want to play them more. The more that Time Magazine said these games were violent, the more I had to play them. Well, well clearly at least you had parenting in your life. <laughs> <laughs> no, but seriously, I remember these discussions with my friends. We we'd have like, you got to get Mortal Kombat on the Sega because it's got the blood, not like that Super Nintendo one where it's green. Oh, that's right, that's right. No, is it green? I th- when when you in Nintendo when you punch each other, like green stuff comes out. I thought it was sweat. Oh no, wait. I think no, no. I think Nintendo went with sweat, and then Sega went with green. But there was a code to make it blood. Uh... Nintendo did not have the code. Oh god! Yeah. I hope I got that right because I know somebody's going to crucify me for it. <laughs> but, just like how Wolfenstein, I think Nintendo's Wolfenstein, they removed the dogs. Yeah, because you know I, I can't shoot a dog. But clearly, I'm not just an evil Nazi dog trying to eat my face. But you know, oh, you should play Wolfenstein: The New Order and Wolfenstein: The New Colossus. Those two games from 2014 and 2016, they're great. You get to kill Nazi dogs with with cybernetic enhancements. I Sorry, play, I'm halfway through. I'm halfway through um, the the first one. I have not touched the second one yet. I'm yeah. playing it on Switch, actually. <laughs> Oh, nice, 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 nice. Just again, a console you would never imagine such games being played on because it's Nintendo. Or maybe that's just me because I grew up in an age where Nintendo meant family friendly. Yeah. Misha, when you have kids, one day day they'll be playing the most violent, profane video game on a Nintendo console and you'll have your hands on your hips and you'll be saying, back in my day, that's not Nintendo. No, but it's true. Nintendo would not touch that kind of a game back in the day. They were firmly in the ages 13 and under category. And that's what Sega leveraged in every one of their ads. Yeah, and I love, I love how they framed it, too. They were saying, like, look, if we make our video games here at Sega, if we make it so that we're targeting kids who are 13 years old or the older brothers and the older sisters, and automatically we're going to win the younger brothers and the younger sisters because they'll be like, oh, I want to play with the older brothers. Exactly. <laughs> I thought that was genius. Absolutely, that was genius. Yeah, don't, don't underestimate the, the, the power of aspirational siblinghood. You know what I mean? Like, you know, yeah. <laughs> it was just, wow. And they were showing, like, clips from old Senate hearings. The United States Senate actually took it upon themselves to question whether or not they should institute a rating system on video games. And I remember reading about that in Time magazine I because my father, because, you know, my brother and I were super into video games at the time. He actually took the time to photocopy Time magazine at his office and he gave me that cover story about how far is too far when it came to video games. It talked about all the stuff in this documentary. Night Trap, Mortal Kombat, Street Fighter. And I'm, I'm watching this and I'm like, I know exactly what they're talking about. I think it was hilarious was that before before they they even during the congressional hearings like when people mentioned violent video games they mentioned like Mortal Kombat all right yeah the best selling bloody viol- fighting game of all time and uh-huh. 3D comes up it's like ah the best selling first person murder fest of all time and then night trap comes up and people are like no one heard of this game until today <laughs> okay again because i was there i remember it wholeheartedly i remember how crappy it was 
I mean, I'd never actually seen it in action. I'd only ever read about it because there was no way that game was getting into my house. I mean, yeah, because it's been for print ads. That's how that's how you knew about it. It's there in fucking Egia. <laughs> but I just remember it being this legendary thing. So that when I finally saw it on the internet when I was in college, I saw it on YouTube, and I was like, this is what people were upset about 20 years ago? <laughs> Seriously? Are you serious? This is what people are upset about. <laughs> well, not 10, 20 years ago. Oh, I can never could count. But, you know, the thing is, like, if you look at it now, it is such campy garbage. And even <laughs> the guy who created it, he's like, you know, they just showed the worst possible clips and they edited edited them together to make it look super sinister Mm-mm, in, yeah. in the Senate. But if you play the thing, you know, you can see how bad it is. You know, it, it, the acting is bad. The gore is meh. You know, the so-called sex and violence was... Yeah, I mean, the average episode of Baywatch is more risque than this game. Look, literally every piece of entertainment can be made look, to look bad. If you take the one thing and then call it the thing that it is, what, what I mean is say, you, 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 th- you, you look at a show and you say, you, you know, that show is excessively violent. And then you take like the most violent scene out there and you're like, Look at this. It is violent. Well, yes, it is violent, but it's only a small part of the show. You know what I mean? Like, you know, you're- uh, I really like the fighting game episode. Um, okay, stop me if I'm way off base here, but is it wrong? I mean, in my head, I'm thinking there's something wrong with the narrator referring to them as fight games. Aren't they fighting games? He said fight game once. and then No, he, he said it over and over. He oh. kept referring to the genre as fight game. Oh, and that was it, weird. It, it, I, I had that never was. heard that before. <laughs> no, I, I, am I out of touch? Am I out of the loop? Is this a new thing? I don't well, know. Let me out here. You write well, about video games. Well, I don't know. I have not heard it. I, uh, fighting games ain't my beat, but I can tell you I have a direct line to the fighting game community. And according to the fighting game community, it's called Fighting Game. It's there in the title, right? Fighting Game Community. It's not a fight game. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> but I really enjoyed seeing how classic Street Fighter characters got designed. And Oh, and- man. Could you believe eight characters used to be a lot? <laughs> <laughs> I Oh, yeah. No kidding. That's why when Tournament Edition came out and the new, the, the new challengers, oh, my God. I was just blown away. I think from eight, it became, what, 15, 12? From eight... Uh, from 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 Street Fighter to Super Street Fighter, it went from eight characters to twelve characters. There you go. And then and then it became sixteen characters if you included the villains who who became fully playable without any unlocks. So you know Vega, Balrog, M Bison, and Sagat. Right. I I, right. I just really like seeing them talk about um, the photo walks they would take to find interesting places to stage their Oh, battle. yeah, that's so neat. Yeah, Or all the little tweaks that they would do to give everybody nationalistic characteristics, but cranked up to 30. On a scale of 1 to 10, they would crank it up to 30. Like, Honda just used to be a regular sumo wrestler, then they put a Yukata on him, then they put the makeup on his face, and then they gave him the power to propel himself halfway across the screen. Yeah, it's, it's wild, like, actually. <laughs> absolutely wild. That's why it amuses me that there are some people now who look at this and they say that these are racist caricatures, when the people who created them had no such intention. Fine, I know that intention doesn't correlate to effect, but, you know, they they were just... They just did not strike me as being vindictive or racist in any way. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's a sort of cartoon ca- cartoon representation, and I think as far as the original Street Fighter Two and its variations are concerned, I'm okay with that. You know, it's funny though because like uh, this is a little pet peeve of mine that is not real. That is kind of a t- tangent here, but. My partner and I, like, we're not big fans of the very, very popular game called Overwatch. Uh, Tell the, me more. And the re- one of the things that, we're, we're, that, that, that gets at us is people in the mainstream press are very keen to celebrate Overwatch for its, like, diversity, for representing people, you know, <sighs> different races and different colors and different, you know, whatever. And, Genders and whatnot. Yeah, and... It is true that it does that, but it doesn't do it exceptionally well. Do you know what I mean? Like it's right. still like it's still like oh, you know, the 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 Russian is very Russian. You know, the the Indian is very Indian. That kind <laughs> right, of stuff. Right, right. And and when when we're when we're at our meanest moments, you know, we're like my my, my partner came up with this. They, they were like, you know, this is just Street Fighter Two diversity, <laughs> and that's not a knock on Street Fighter Two. What we're basically saying is that this fucking 2016 video game is about as diverse as a 1991 fighting game. <laughs> that is absolutely true. That is absolutely true. It's like, why are you giving these people accolades or a mm-hmm. thumbs up? And then you're looking at something from 30 years ago and you're saying that it's racist. I'm like, guys, come on. <laughs> but I digress. I digress. But uh, honestly, I didn't know until that Street Fighter episode, the, until the fighting game episode, I did not know that Japanese video game culture wasn't competitive. Mm. That this is the first time that you are forced to interact with the guy next to you. Ooh. And, um, you know, <laughs> actually, the, the, I think the documentary likened it to a showdown in the Old West. That yeah. you were forced to prove yourself, prove your might. Yeah. And that just uh, blew my mind because <laughs> I thought in my head, surely... There have been competitive games before. There have been one-on-one scenarios before. But they said there hadn't been in Japan. I'm not sure about that necessarily. But I definitely think that what we can all agree on is that there were no such competitive games that had sort of like taken the culture by storm and really made a mass market uh, penetration. (laughs) Penetration. Oh my Uh, god. <sighs> oh my goodness! Uh, <laughs> I'm gonna message your girlfriend. Is that is that cool? <laughs> She's so much cooler than I or you, and she will just roll her eyes and she'll be like, "Ugh, children." <laughs> you know, yeah. she'd be absolutely justified though in this case, I think. But. Um, <laughs> I like hearing about the formation of things that you just take for granted. Things that have been around for so long that nobody even questions how they came about. Things like Atari, like Sierra. Okay, Sierra's not around. Um, Like EA, you know, stuff like that. I mean, these are like the pillars of video games. And hearing their progenitors um just gush about them like six-year-olds you know it was just a treat honest in all honesty and i like that the documentary wasn't vindictive in any way you know it wasn't like 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 the king of kong that just needed to make a hero versus villain narrative you I know mean, this, is this fun but you it know, is but it has but, an agenda yeah 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 
this one just it just struck me as coming from a place of love. As stupid as it sounds, I think this documentary series came from a place of genuine affection. What excites me also about this series is I think I think to some extent it's also kind of a pitch because there are six episodes and I think they do a great job at plumbing all these topics that if this series were never to be revisited again, it's still something to look back on and be proud of. But I also felt like there was a bit of a pitch behind it in the sense oh, that absolutely that they were going like, all right, in the following seasons, we would like to explore these topics. You know, like they talked about because because the ending felt a little abrupt for the yes. season the season finale. Yeah. Um, so they're talking about, for example, players who might want to modify their games, players who want to take their excitement outside. I think some of the topics they might be looking at would be cosplay culture, mm-hmm. uh, competitive culture, uh, the modding scene, people who take you know games and sort of like fix them or repair them or add to them or create new content for them, like all yeah. sorts of avenues that are more like user-faced. And it'll be great if they explore that. But it will also be uh, a shame if they don't take a second season or third season as an opportunity to like really look at some of the other things that we talked about, like I, you know the dramas and and and, and stuff. I think um, I think it's similar to um, the toys that made us in that respect. I mean, absolutely what you said there that they try and cover the basics, right? Mm-hmm. Stuff that you gotta cover. So in the case of the toys that made us, that was Star Wars, Barbie, He-Man, G.I. Joe. That if they never got a second season, they would have been good. And in this, this show, you got the, the rise of the video game, arcade culture, home consoles, Nintendo, Sega, fighting games, controversy. First-person shooters, RPGs. Okay, if we never get another season, that's okay. But that's good, because mm-hmm. at least we got to say something about something we're clearly passionate about. But mm-hmm. I, I agree that there's so much they can do for a second, third, fourth, even a fifth, you know, as, as long as they want to. As many yeah. seasons they want to make. Like, for me personally, like, my arcade experience wasn't Space Invaders. It wasn't Pac-Man. It wasn't Donkey Kong. My arcade experience was stuff like Time Crisis, Street Fighter, you know? There's so much to be said. There's so many other kinds of games that they could still explore. So mm-hmm. I am not going to be surprised if based on the good reviews and the good reactions that this show has been getting, that they will get at least one more season. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, maybe, you know, if they're lucky, we'll also talk about stuff that uh, is more pertinent to the present-day gaming industry. Uh, and I don't mean issues, I just mean, like, the art of making games, because that's clearly what the focus of this documentary series is about, absolutely. the art of making games. Because, And that's where I was hesitant about the series, was that, like, it's still good in talking about retro stuff, but I feel like not enough work has been done in the documentary space to explore how video games are made today in this decade and this yes. in this century like you know because how video games are made today are so weird and crazy and compelling and like magnified that you know i really wish more people understood how that goes if, if they're interested i think the, f- the first point of reference we can look at is a documentary that's also available on netflix it's called uh playing hard it was directed by a, I think it was a French Canadian filmmaker who was concerned about all, not concerned, because he, he noticed a lot of people were moving into his neighborhood of Montreal and they were all working on a big video game for Ubisoft called For Honor. Mm-hmm. And that documentary explores sort of like the emotional toll that making a big AAA ass video game has on like its creative director and i'm like oh let's do more of that let's do let's talk exactly. about this absolutely that's something that i'm definitely interested in because that's where the video game industry now 
seems to be putting all of its cards, the AAA yeah. titles that sell consoles. Yeah. Um, that could definitely be an episode moving forward. They could even do an episode about the implosion of Sega with the Dreamcast and the Sega Saturn. They could yeah, do an yeah. episode about the experiential arcade games that I mentioned earlier, like Time Crisis or even the stuff, you know, uh, the, they became glorified theme parks already to some degree, even as arcade culture in America died down. Yeah. So there's still so much to uncover, to unpack, and I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, and you know, I want to close this show out with like uh, some recommendations as well. So if you guys, you know, enjoyed our conversation about the high score, and if you also enjoyed the documentary series itself, you know, there's lots of resources out there for free uh, about video game history that are excellent watches. You know, like um, I uh, encourage you all to check out No Clip, a documentary series run by uh, Daniel Dwyer, formerly of GameSpot fame, where he talks to developers from all around the world and sort of gets, like, the process of how to make games. They always have these one big documentary things, like, about, about games like Dishonored and, you know, the Telltale uh, Studios and all that stuff. Like, it's great, great stuff. Um, they, could do an adventure, they could do an adventure game episode and talk about stuff like Monkey Island. I'm sorry. Uh, I, I'm, I'm just genuinely excited for more episodes of this. I get, I get it, yeah. Uh, other stuff you should check out is uh, Cloth Map. It is a series about this guy who travels the world. He goes to Brazil, he goes to uh, Turkey, and he sort of like explores the communities of gamers in different countries. And it's uh, actually weird trivia Easter egg. It's run by the guy who is the blinking guy meme. <laughs> <laughs> I did not know that. <laughs> and he's like, he's, like, he's a guy who goes, he does, uh, well, you can't see it on the podcast, but I. <laughs> It's okay. They all know what you're talking about. Yeah, and uh, there's also Gaming Historian, uh, uh, the one that you recommended to me, Misha, Gaming Historian. Uh, mm -hmm. Lots of good stuff. Um, I won't pad out the rest of the episode talking about oh, every... There's another one. There's um, Stop Skeletons from Fighting. That is a good, fun one. Oh, I'll check that one out. I've never heard that one before, but we'll put a bunch of recommendations uh, on, the, on the week that this episode drops. Wait, 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 hold on. The, uh, Stop Skeletons from Fighting, right? They have, um, I think, a monthly segment. It's called, um, I think it's called Punching Weight or something like that. It's about consoles that are playing games that, by definition, should not be playable on those consoles. <laughs> oh, wow. What the it's amazing. What all right, I'll check that out. I'll check that out. But yeah, um, and I guess that's an episode. Yeah. <laughs> thanks Thank, Thanks for listening thank to us today. Absolutely. We had fun. You guys should check out High Score on Netflix. Let us know what you think about it, and maybe share some of your video game memories in the comments. <laughs> um, yeah, this has been another episode of Three Point Landing, a Big Baby Studios production. Uh, and we are your hosts. I'm Misha. I'm Matthew. Uh, we'll see you next week. Hooray! Seriously, I love the show. It was a good show. <laughs> yeah. Fucking A. I, I need more episodes. I'm not even kidding. They could do an entire episode on handhelds, you know? <laughs>